Zach Hagedon, uh, thanks for coming back to Your Wild Place. It's good to be here. Thank you. Welcome back to Your Wild Place, a podcast from the Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. I'm your host, Jack Peterson. On this episode, we're talking once again to journalist Zach Hagedon, whose series of articles on what we call the Timber Wars continues to appear in the Sandpoint Reader. Last time, our focus was on his most recent piece, which covered the build-up to the dramatic confrontations over timber stands in the 1980s and 1990s, beginning in the aftermath of World War II with the tremendous boom in demand for timber as suburban housing exploded in the 40s and 50s. Today, we stepped all the way back to the beginning of the story of the timber economy in the western United States and traced the very origins of the American conservation movement that developed in opposition to the cut-and-run timber harvesting of the late 19th century, and arrive at what appears to be a stable consensus among most of the parties concerned with timber policy in the 1930s, which proved ultimately to be short-lived. We start with our continuing discussion of how he came to write a piece about the timber wars in the 1980s and 90s by starting his story more than 100 years before those events. Here now is Zach Hagedon editor-in-chief of the Sandpoint Reader. And when we think about the timber wars, you know, we often isolate it to that period in the 80s and 90s. And I think last time we talked, you know, we, one of the big points that we came to was sort of that's a, a, it's the wrong way to think about it. And really what I did to begin was I just typed in the word conservation into the Bonner County Historical Society newspaper archives just to see what people were saying about conservation. And I set the time parameters to, you know, 1890, whatever, to 1925, and just sort of used that as my baseline um, to see what the conversation was about con- about conservation in yeah. that early time period. And it turns out there were a lot of really interesting ideas about conservation back then, and it led me on this sort of longer-term uh, look at, you know, so that first part of the 20th century and how those ideas of conservation morphed from basically no conversation about conservation. Um, and if people were talking about it, they were you know, denigrating it as, I think one of these sources called it moonshine, to sort of uh, the idea that you conserve things so that you can be economically benefited by them. Mm-hmm. So you know, conserve certain trees so that they can be cut and sold, to conserve things because of recreation, which was a, sort of a new idea in, in the national life, especially in the West, uh, that popped up around the 20s. And then it was a form of conservation in the 30s during the Depression for was getting people back to work in the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, to you know, sort of that beginning of the, of the World War II era where conservation had really blossomed into a more robust vision for you know, both economic benefit, for environmental benefit, for social benefit. So that's sort of the, the broad sweep. When you sat down to write a series of articles about the Timber Wars, did you know right away that you were going to go all the way back and really start? Or did you think you'd be focused much more on that kind of uh, dramatic headline-grabbing period in the 80s and 90s? Well, I'm a, I have a master's in U.S. history, um, and I've always been a historically-minded person. It's been a passion of mine my whole life. And so whenever I approach any kind of topic, I often default to thinking about, well, what are the actual roots of this thing? Mm-hmm. So instead of jumping right into like, you know, 1980s, 1990s, my mind, you know, my, my historical training and my historical sensibility immediately thought to be like, well, there's no way that that was just a thing that happened. Yeah. There had to have been things in the past that, that built up to it. Otherwise, people wouldn't have been so passionate about these issues. This is sort of where my mind always goes. It's like, yeah. how's, how's as far back as we can get uh-huh. to explain why this one thing happened and then sort of work forward from that. Um, and, and going as far back as we can get uh, goes back to like Western expansion and the first uh, pioneers coming, coming this way uh, to where we sit now. When did timber come to be seen as a resource to be harvested rather than just an obstacle in the way of farming? <clears throat> that was something that kind of surprised me. I, I wasn't expecting to find that the Homestead Act was really mm-hmm. kind of at the base of this. And, you know, at, at the risk of going too far back in the, the history, um, the East Coast had been, you know, sort of settled or colonized by Europeans yeah. uh, much, much sooner. Or, yeah, a, long t- a very long time ago compared to the West. I mean, you're lo- looking at like hundreds of years of settler colonization in the East. So those forests had been cut down, regrown, cut down, regrown. I mean, there's probably 
five generations of growth on those eastern forests. Hmm. Uh, and they were an obstacle, for sure, uh, to the development of those communities. And it wasn't until after war, or the Civil War when the Homestead Act was, was put in place. And the notion for the Homestead Act really was to try to unite the country after the Civil War by opening up new areas to go mm-hmm. um, for people who didn't want to live in communities that had been destroyed by the Civil War. They wanted to reinvent themselves, you know, in, in that sort of classic American way. Uh, so the Homestead Act sort of propelled them out to the West, and it was there that they ran into these really rugged landscapes. And for a bunch of farmers, this was a huge pain. Like, we don't want these trees in the way. Like, we want to till these down and make fields, and we got to dig up all these rocks, and we got to cut down all these trees. Um, so it was a super hassle uh, for those early sort of, quote-unquote, homesteaders, not to mention the fact that there were already people living there, like the indigenous tribes, which yeah. they considered to be an obstacle as well. So there's a real painful kind of, uh, you know, that settler colonist history is very uncomfortable uh, viewing the landscape and the people who live on it as sort of being in the way. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you get like the, the Timber and Stone Act, which was a component of the Homestead Act, which said that you could get all this land, 160 acres or whatever, um, if you could pull the stones out and pull the timber out and turn it into a farm. And that's where you start seeing the commodification of timber. Cause it's a lot of work to cut down all these trees and pull up all these stones. And these people are trying to make farms and they're thinking to themselves, well, why am I doing all this work? Mm-hmm. And I'm not getting anything out of the actual timber and stone. So yeah. that becomes something that they start selling. Yeah. And in a sort of perverse incentive uh, way, the timber and stone act turned these people away from being farmers and turned them into timber salespeople. And then you start getting the development of these big companies, right, that are selling lumber. And so they start hiring people to go out and make a claim under the Homestead Act, you know, ostensibly like, oh, I'm going to be a farmer. But they're actually working for the timber company. They're leveraging the yeah. Homestead Act to get access to the timber, cutting it down, and then selling it back to the, the lumber companies. And so it's interesting to think about that as an attempt to, you know, settle or colonize the West, but it also sort of turns into a commodification of of the landscape yeah which was not its intent its intent was you know to get homesteaders out into the west to sort of conquer the landscape and turn it into arable farmland yeah well it turns them into you know timber salesmen (laughs) yeah you you mentioned in the article that uh it was pretty early on that they you know people is 160 acres is what you get right right that's a ton to me that's a ton of land. That but seems like a were, lot. <laughs> yeah. But people were uh, right away being like, I would like a little more. If, yeah. Well, and if you're, what you're doing is instead of turning it into farmland, you're cutting every tree down mm-hmm. and then you want to move on to the next plot. You know, it, it becomes that cut and run mentality, which really is the philosophy that drives the timber practices of that time period of the late 1800s into the first sort of decades of the 20th century was – Get a hold of a chunk of land, go in there, cut every single thing down, sell as much of it as you can for as much as you can, and then move on to the next piece and do the same thing. So they they called it skinning, skinning over the land as well. It was very profitable, especially with this building boom that was going on with all these people coming in and building these communities like Sandpoint. Uh, but it was incredibly damaging <laughs> to the landscape. It was ugly. It was ecologically deeply irresponsible. I mean, you think about the amount of erosion that occurred with these whole like mountainsides getting denuded of trees. You know, when the big rains come, you would end up with mm-hmm. these huge mud bogs. Uh, if you look at some of the old photos in the archives of this area and you see these just vast swaths of stumps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks almost like a war zone. So, I mean, that, that became a, that was one of the first notions of conservation was people looking at these landscapes and saying, wow, this, this doesn't seem right. So we need to <laughs> start changing our practices a little bit. The, the people who saw that and said, we got to do something about this, what did they end up doing? This was another major development that I wasn't expecting to find in the history, you know, that led to sort of this conservation notion mm-hmm. was, you know, you had a couple of decades late in the 19th and early 20th centuries where, you know, people were just doing this cut and run. And right around the time of Teddy Roosevelt's administration, was when that conservation ethic starts to sort of emerge. And Gifford Pinchot, you know, um, he was sort of the the land czar, you know, for Roosevelt. He was his public lands guy. Uh, He starts really pushing this notion of a timber famine, is what they called it, 
And at the time, there was concerns in the East that we were going to have a coal famine. Like the idea they were running out of coal. Yeah. Well, that same sort of worry manifested itself in the West by saying, you know, we look at the amount of trees we're cutting down here and we're not going to have any trees left yeah. <laughs> by, by the 1940s. And we need to do something to conserve this resource, not necessarily for environmental reasons. I don't know that they would have phrased it in that way at the time, but it was to preserve a resource mm-hmm. for the future. And that's where you get the, the reserve system, the forest reserves. The Teddy Roosevelt administration, do you, do you look at him as either the most important or just the, the first one that really took it seriously? I think definitely the first that took it very seriously yeah. and understood it as a national policy. See, land policy prior to Teddy Roosevelt was really hodgepodge. I mean, it was local jurisdictions, local communities sort of mm-hmm. doing whatever they wanted to do. Um, and then after the Civil War, there was that notion that we needed to bring the country together and have sort of a national outlook on a lot of issues. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, really typified that sort of national outlook and that these landscapes needed to be managed in a national way. Mm-hmm. And the reserve system that Pinchot sort of oversaw was literally taking huge chunks of land and then putting them in reserve, mm-hmm. saying you cannot cut on this. Um, you know, you can't do anything on this without the permission of the federal government. And this was massively controversial. <laughs> was it under just executive authority or was there a, a, an act, uh, some kind of congressional act that gave them this, uh, this power to do it? Well, Congress owns the public lands yeah. and administers them on behalf of the American people. And I think that's a, that, that's a power that's enumerated mm-hmm. in Congress. And so there's wide latitude at that time to formulate a policy. And Roosevelt was regarded as kind of a dictator by yeah. some by some people, you know, people who were opposed to this reserve notion and this idea that you can't tell me what to do with the land. It's mm-hmm. my land, right? And yeah. well, Teddy Roosevelt says, eh, <laughs> it is, you know, but <laughs> yeah. we also have a government, right, that, that has a say in these things. So. That's what made the reserve system so controversial was that it seemed really dictatorial to people. It seemed like, you know, executive overreach. Mm-hmm. And there were politicians like, uh, you know, Weldon Hayburn here in Idaho. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he was a senator, U.S. senator. He just blasted Roosevelt all the time from, from Congress. And you look at the newspapers from this time period, say 19, 1905 to 1908, and the local papers here were just on fire with this reserve thing. Like it's, it's a piece of history I'd never heard of, but you know, if you wanted to make people angry in places like Sandpoint and Bonner County during the early 1900s, you just mm-hmm. talk about reserve systems mm-hmm. and saying like, you can't go out into the woods and cut this down and sell it. Yeah. They, there were mass meetings that were held here where citizen committees would get together and write these, you know, denunciations of Roosevelt and Pinchot and mail them off, you know, to the white house. They would, we have these big protests. I mean, I think there were even like some, like a march. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, be, before I ask you about, yeah, what those, what that resistance looked like, do you, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Gifford Pinchot, who you mentioned before? What's his story? Well, I didn't get too far into his biographical stuff, mm-hmm. but I mean, he was a very highly educated sort of East Coast guy, mm-hmm. um, kind of, kind of studious, mm-hmm. you know, like professorial mm-hmm. sort of. And he was one of the first of these true sort of national bureaucrat manager types. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is the progressive era, of course, which is when expertise started to become necessary mm-hmm. for a lot of these issues. I mean, prior to the, I mean, a lot of American history, you look back at some of these, you know, political leaders, they don't have any training in anything. Um, they're, you know, a lot of them are just sort of charismatic people. Pinchot was an expert, and this is the beginning of the expert class. Uh, and looking at the complexity of national issues, you need these smart people. And I mean, they were mostly men. Like, not to, at the time, a lot of these sort of careers weren't open to women. So at, at the time, there's this sort of smart East Coast gentleman, like mm-hmm. specialist type. Yeah. And Gifford Pinchot was definitely one of those. Though he did have this love, you know, for the wilderness. Um, and he had sort of that beginning of the conservation ethos, and that's why Roosevelt relied on him so heavily for these issues. And 
Pinchot was also very actively engaged in his department. I mean, he was the head of the, he was the first head of the Forest Service. And this is really what we're getting to is that this reserve system is the beginning of the national forests. They didn't call them that at the time. They mm-hmm. called them forest reserves. That was Pinchot's vision. I think that he and Roosevelt both sort of looked ahead to the future and said, not only are these going to be reserves, they're going to be national forests that are owned and operated and managed by the federal government. And I don't know that they made that argument specifically at the beginning, mm-hmm. but I have a sense that Pinchot being the guy that he was and smart in the way that he was probably had that in the back of his mind from the beginning. Yeah. And the fact that he cared so deeply about this as a, as a protection for, you know, economic health of the country, as well as, you know, the environmental aspects uh, is that he actually came here um, and addressed a crowd in Coeur d'Alene, which I had never heard of either. And he was there specifically to address the forest reserve issue. He was hearing so many complaints and getting these, you know, angry letters from these citizen groups and probably hearing about it from people like Weldon Hayburn in the Senate that he made it a, a point to come out here to Coeur d'Alene and spent like an entire evening just getting yelled at by, uh-huh. uh, by all these, these angry landowners, you know, lumber company executives, people who just regular old citizens who say, I, you know, I don't believe that you can lock up this land and I want to be able to cut it down and do what I want with it. And so he's there like very kind of patiently trying to explain to them like why this is necessary. And I found some of the, some of the material in the papers where they quoted him was just really interesting that he's trying to, he's being very uh, precise with what he's trying to say here. And uh, he's trying to disabuse these folks of their mistaken ideas. Uh, There's one great quote in here where he's sort of trying to uh, assuage these concerns, you know, that Roosevelt's being some kind of dictator and that we're trying to tell people what to do. He says, uh, if a man wants to go upon a piece of land and make a home, the department, which is the sort of National Forest Service, uh, the department wants to help him. If he wants to sell out to get the timber and dispose of it to some lumber company, we want to hinder him, and we will if possible. President Roosevelt has no use for the man who skins the land and moves on. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a pretty great sort of summary of mm-hmm. why the forest reserve system was seen as so vitally needed. And I think, I think, I think it's so interesting that Pinchot would come all the way out here in, you know, I think that was 1907, it was, oh, sorry, it was a 1907 visit that he made. Mm-hmm. And it was reported in, you know, the Ponderay Review newspaper. And, and getting out here at that time would have been difficult. Yeah. Like, you don't just get on a plane. Like, Pinchot had to, <laughs> that was probably like a week-long journey to, yeah. get, to get out here just to talk about that with a bunch of people in, like, Podunk, Coeur d'Alene. Was Roosevelt himself, I mean, we, we think of him, or at least I think of him as, this is the one of his crowning achievements of his legacy is his, his uh, tendency towards conservation and, and protecting uh, certain landscapes. Uh, was he aware of, I mean, was that kind of at the forefront of his mind as well, or was this just something that part of his cabinet was doing and, and he was okay with it? I think he was deeply engaged with this issue. Yeah. And I don't think that he, I think he probably sent Pinchot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that Pinchot would have gone anyway mm-hmm. but i can't imagine that you know he just like jumped out and said oh well i'm, I'm gonna go to Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. you know boss <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure that roosevelt was said yeah i mean you need to go out here and deal with this and talk about it to these people um and, and we all know you know that roosevelt himself had such personal connections with sort of wild landscapes i mean he, he visited here there's a very famous old story about roosevelt when he was uh he was a secretary of the navy i think or i forget what he was he was before he was president yeah as a young man came through here on an elk hunting trip and stayed in Sandpoint, uh, took a room on the corner of First and Pine in an old boarding house there. And I believe it was the Hawkins family, the lighthouse yeah. uh, Hawkins family. They were here. I think it was a great, great grandmother ran the boarding house. And Roosevelt was asleep in this bed. And one of the, the sons of this lady, uh, he had been at University of Idaho and he came home to visit and he'd been out to the bars and... <laughs> He stayed at this boarding house. It was like his house, you know. So he, he crawls in through the window late at night, and he's, you know, had a lot of whiskey or whatever. And he crawls into bed, and Roosevelt happens to be in his bed. So they get into a little altercation, and then the kid has to sleep on the floor. <laughs> Roosevelt keeps the bed. Um, but uh-huh. I mean, that's all to say, you know, that Roosevelt was familiar with this area and had a, a an affection for it. He came through here a, a number of times. Yeah. So there's also that. I think that he he understood what this place was like and what the people here were like. 
And that would, I would suggest, says something about why Pinchot would come all the way out to Coeur d'Alene mm-hmm. and talk about these issues because the, the White House was aware of, <laughs> of us here. Yeah. But the crowd that Pinchot faced was hostile, we mm. would say. What, what what did the resistance out here look like for uh, to this timber reserve system? Well, in that in that same Pondere uh, review article, it's the meeting that he had in Cordelang was described as Pinchot being besieged for hours by rich lumbermen, small claim holders, and protesting citizens, um, making for a quote strenuous afternoon and evening. <laughs> <laughs> strenuous for, for Pinchot. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that that kind of sums it up, I think. I mean, it was, there was this great feeling here uh as i'm sure it was elsewhere in kind of the rural west at the beginning of the 20th century that that this was you know sort of virgin land even though it wasn't i mean as we already kind of mentioned i mean there were people who've been living here for tens of thousands of years you know so those people were completely pushed out of the way and there was this new breed of settler who was rapidly trying to cut everything down dig everything up make as much money as they could build these towns build these economies and there was a real sense of national renewal mm-hmm. after the Civil War. Like there was, this was like a mission was to settle the land and you know tame the West. Mm-hmm. This, this, all that kind of you know American exceptionalist stuff that we that we hear from that time period and kind of cringe, knowing what we know today, how to manage landscapes and how to manage societies. But yeah, I mean there was a lot of like sort of rock ribbed pioneer boosterism. It was going on, and there was another great article that I found in the archives from around that same time. I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but he uh, he wrote this just bitter denunciation in one of the local papers, where he talks about how North Idaho is full of leeches, um, <laughs> where he's criticizing the kinds of people that are coming here. Yeah, um, and he, he, he's you know basically saying you know that the town's been ruined by all these rich people and all these sort of opportunists. And they're coming in here, and it's you know all professional men, real estate boosters, clerks, grafters, and knockers, which all together make up three thousand of the possible six thousand of our lake, city, and environments. And we want no more of that fraternity. He's basically saying that you know we need farmers here. We don't need you know basically what what he described there as professional yeah. men, real estate boosters, clerks, grafters. Like he 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 wants that real hardy pioneer type, the Jeffersonian kind of ideal farmer. The uh, this is Lewis Arnold. I think is yeah, the, uh, yeah, that the sounds right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and he's just a local character. I mean, uh, I, I had never heard of him before. I, I don't know. I don't know a thing about him. He just wrote a. He, it, it's a pretty good. Or what your your quotes in it are pretty. Uh, he's he's got a flair. He's got a way with words. I wish I knew more about him. And if anybody yeah. out there does know more about him, I would love to hear it because this, this was one of those gems that you find in the archive. You know, mm-hmm. if you spend enough time sort of reading through these old articles, and I, I read. Uh, or at least processed through, and I counted it up, almost 2,000 articles mm-hmm. um, in our local archive. And this was one that just sort of popped out. Mm-hmm. And I started reading it. I was like, this is gold. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> I mean, a lot of what yeah. he says, you know, you hear people say today yeah. about, you know, the changing nature of the town and, you know, this, this idea that there is a certain kind of person that we want to see in the West. And here he is, you know, in 1906 or whatever, 1908, um, just putting them on blast uh, for being these sort of rapacious, you know, opportunists. The the, the idea of um, the forest reserve system ex- extremely controversial, and I mean more than controversial, but kind of seems like the tide of public opinion, at least in North Idaho, was strongly against, at least at the beginning. But that at some point that obviously shifts. Yeah. What what, what caused that? Pinchot got dismissed by Taft mm-hmm. after he took over from Roosevelt and a lot of people celebrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's articles in our local papers that just sort of like laughing about Pinchot getting fired or as they, as they referred to him, you know, as being fired, but people were starting to understand that yes, there was a, a real reason why we needed this reserve. Like we needed to protect this resource. And again, they didn't necessarily make that argument along environmental or ecological lines. They made it on economic policy as the communities like Sandpoint and, you know, in, in the rural West became more solidified and they became more brick and mortar as opposed to sort of lumber camps mm-hmm. uh, that, that they were, they, they actually became towns mm-hmm. with industries and the mills um, 
were firmly established and not only established, but really the, the only game in town. I mean, you look back at Sandpoint during this time period, you know, early 1900s to probably the 1930s, Humbird Lumber Company was, was it. You, you shopped at the Humbird store, you went to the Humbird bank, you worked for Humbird. Every, everything revolved around the mill. So you have these sort of mill company towns and that attitude of just going cut everything down didn't work anymore economically. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in part because everything had been cut down. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that system of cutting and run or cutting and running uh, really is self-defeating because there comes a point where you can't run anywhere else. And you're sort of forced into conservation yeah. if you want to continue operating a mill. And I think that people understood that. And once Pinchot was gone, there was no more lightning rod for them to hate. And while Pinchot was out, I mean, the forest reserve system stayed. And it it started to provide the benefits that it was intended to provide um, with giving some stability uh, to the timber supply and reinforcing kind of the federal government's authority. And the mills could find opportunities to work kind of hand in glove with the feds. So this is where you start seeing a collaborative, you know, if, you, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's a, kind of a nice word to put on it. But it, they were collaborating together, not necessarily to conserve a environmental resource, but to conserve an economic resource. So I would pinpoint that period, like sort of late 08, 1910. So whenever Pinchot was gone yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is, is when you start to see the complexity of the land management ideal kind of coming together. And it's coming together around economics more than the environment. But that's really a, a beginning. And the, the rage over the reserve system, strangely, just like evaporates. Like you look at those earlier newspapers and it's just article after article and it's you know it's not even just sort of like random cranks yeah. who are angry about this You're, i mean there's like u.s senators who are weighing in on it um you know there's mayors there's i mean, every, I mean officials officialdom yeah. is angry about this too but then all of a sudden it's it's just gone and i think it's because people realize that yeah that you do need to conserve things <laughs> if you want to have them in the future which seems kind of like a no-brainer but again you know we, we have the benefit of you know, more than 100 years of hindsight on this it's so interesting i mean people always hate to admit when they were wrong they'll you know they'll they'll rethink something and then they'll kind of quietly adopt the other view without saying oh all those all those things i said before were uh were mistaken uh, it sounds like pinchot was a bit of a scapegoat and once he was out you know that that hated figure then he could mm-hmm. leave you know the the good ideas behind yeah, yeah. He, he he absolutely was the whipping boy yeah um but again like i like i was saying i think that just sort of naturally by that time a lot of that land had already been picked over. Yeah. So it was sort of a natural lessening of the tension because there was people just, I mean, you look at the newspapers and prior to this, there would be like an entire page of the newspaper in this tiny print that was just nothing but lists of timber and stone claims that individual landowners were making. And it was just like an entire page of a newspaper. like Joe Schmo, timber and stone claim, huh. you know, Bill yeah. Johnson, timber, I mean, just row after row after row. And then you see that kind of disappear. Hmm. because people just don't, there's no more land to, else to, grab. to skin. Yeah. <laughs> and the mills had been smart, you know, as they, as they are profit making enterprises mm-hmm. had bought up a lot of land um, mm-hmm. instead of relying on these individuals to go out and make timber and stone claims. So now they were among the hugest landowners. You also have the railroads coming through, um, which was a new development and they mm-hmm. owned just a ton of land. So it was a real mm-hmm. transition away from the individual landowner, trying to make a buck and it turns into the big institutional landowners like the, the mills and the railroad and then the federal government through the forest reserve they were now the big players so the little guy got kind of pushed out um and that's that's where you get a, a big transition as you go into the 20s we should mention real quick uh senator william bora who makes a, a little bit of an appearance in this article as well uh just because he's such a character Yes, yeah, so, well, um, the Lion of Idaho, uh-huh. um, who, you know, this might be a little bit too salacious, but he had a, um, a child with Teddy Roosevelt's daughter. I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. And it was a scandalous thing. They were not married. So Bora and Roosevelt had a history okay. as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I don't know what Teddy thought of Bora, uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Lion of Idaho, right? Yeah. And he, uh, he was very much opposed to the timber reserve system. He didn't like the idea of the yeah. federal government telling Idahoans what to do. However, he, uh, you know, he said, well, there's got to be a middle ground here. Like, he wasn't yeah. a complete partisan, um, but he had some pretty funny jokes you know, yeah, yeah. about this whole thing. And they were, they were reported, right. you know, widely in our local papers. The, 
the one that uh, one that I liked is that he was, he's joking around that um, Senator John McLaren of South Carolina, uh, who was involved in in the timber reserve allocations, uh, mm-hmm. you know, stood on the steps of the Murray Hotel and looked about him and designated the timber, agricultural, and mining sections between drinks. So he's just making fun of this, uh, you know, the, these politicians that he considered to be sort of out-of-touch, elitist, East Coast, you know, sort of know-it-alls who had no connection whatsoever to the lands that they were administering. And that that's kind of the, the thing that with Pinchot that people mm. didn't like, right, was that sort of egghead, mm. bow-tie, East Coast. And you, you see that kind of notion of the sectionalism, you know, the West versus the East comes up again and again in these articles. And I think we forget sometimes just how divided the country remained, even, you know, 50 or 30 years after the Civil War, uh, 40 years. And the West Coast people thought they were the true Americans. And Mm. they were really angry that these East Coast people were trying to tell them what to do with their land. And you still hear this. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this is not gone away. Yeah. And Adam Sowards from the University of Idaho, who uh, who I relied on as a source for all these articles, um, he really keyed into that, too. He's like, yeah, I mean, the first school of forestry in the U.S. was at Yale, and it was established around this time period. So mm-hmm. treating forestry as a science as opposed to an activity yeah. that you do. And people looked at that in the West and was like, well, what do these Yale people know about forestry? Like, I'm a logger. I know about trees. You know, And, then, and they, they talk about these, these people that come out and look at the area and – like make lines on a map saying this is the reserve. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they make fun of these people. They call them, you know, young men who um, looked over the country with a spyglass and smoked cigarettes. So they didn't even roll, uh, <laughs> you know, spending half their time fishing and the other half time and the other time hunting. I love that, that insult. The, you, <laughs> smoking cigarettes. Smoking store-bought <laughs> cigarettes instead of rolling your own. Yeah, yeah, these elitists. Yeah. yeah. What a snob. So um, that, that, mm-hmm. that idea really was uh, resonant. Uh, among people who were opposed to the forest reserve system. And even if they were willing to live with the forest reserve system and later the national forests, they still retained this uh, deep disdain for the experts that would, you know, come in on the train and, you know, make decisions between drinks. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I think at one point they referred to them as swivel chair operators who'd never been farther west than the Notre Dame football field, <laughs> which is such a burn. There's some good yeah. insults. From that, I, I like that kind of language. The uh, the big burn comes in 1910, uh, August 1910. Three million acres of forest went up, uh, and that is a pretty signal event in the in the history of the, I guess, of conservation and of the the forests, national forests and forests in general. Um, does that it? it is that part of kind of people realizing that these, uh, you know, that some it, there needs to be some force managing the forests more than just individuals out there, you know, making timber claims? The Big Burn obviously is a seminal moment, um, not only in, you know, sort of the North Idaho history, but in the national history uh, as it regards thinking about forest fire prevention and the role that like the Forest Service can play in that. Uh, in, in the years leading up to that, you know, the big burn, the the National Forest, like the, the U.S. Forest Service, as it was sort of developing uh, under Pinchot and then later, um, had really started to kind of create a niche for itself in collaborating with mills and with some landowners and railroads and things uh, to work on stuff like blister rust, for instance, uh, which doesn't sound very sexy as a as an idea, but it was a, you know, a disease that affected the trees. And people didn't want to see their stands of timber dying, you know, of some disease. And finally they had to look around and say, well, we need some experts. Like we might hate the experts, but eh, sometimes you need them. (laughs) And the forest service was there to be sort of the provider of that expertise. And then, you know, we say that the first school of forestry was founded around this time and the forest service was becoming a place where, you know, you would go to Yale, study forestry, and then you would get a job with the forest service. And then you would go out to places like North Idaho and they had a blister rust outbreak you could be an expert who was deployed to work with the mills and work with the local folks to try to get this under control so it didn't destroy their profitable stands of timber. That's an opportunity for collaboration uh, that really sort of was invented during that time period. And the other big concern, of course, was forest fire. And the Forest Service, again, could be there as a resource that wasn't local, you know, that could bring federal money in, uh, could bring personnel in that weren't available in that, in that community to help, you know, 
sort of solve these problems, to guard against these threats. And then when they happened, you know, to actually actively fight the fires. Well, the big burn happens and it's just, it's enormous, right? I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it really, and some of the experts I've spoken with say that's really the anniversary, like the birthday of the Forest Service. And it might've existed prior to that, but it really came into its own during the big burn period because people looked at that and said, wow, you know, we need a national fire service, which is more what you could think about the forest service. People still weren't super keen on the whole reserve idea of like conserving trees, but they definitely didn't want to see them burned. They definitely didn't want to see them, you know, infected with blister rust. So this was the, the grudging recognition, like, okay, we do need these people and we need to have a national system, not a state system, not individuals, not like the fire brigade from Humbird Mill, trained firefighters with a knowledge of forestry that is, you know, both academically gained, but also practical um, and put to work and deployed on the ground in reality. And it gets real hard for people to argue with that. Even the ones who would have been screaming and hollering in the newspaper pages, you know, five years earlier or whatever, even they are like, well, we can't, we we can't get upset about this. And, And this is an opportunity really to start thinking about conservation in a more holistic way. Um, and that's kind of backdoor to ecology <laughs> through like blister rust and through forest fire. People are like, well, you know, if a forest burns, then we get a lot of erosion yeah. afterwards and it's going to mess up our water supply. So then people start thinking ecologically, maybe in spite of themselves. You had mentioned the Humbird Mill, which was uh, the main economic force in Sandpoint, where we sit right now, and uh, a large economic force just in North Idaho in general. It was sold at the end of the 1920s to a company that uh, a recognizable name today that a lot of people know. Well, Weyerhaeuser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that sort of that period of the twenties when stuff had been cut over pretty good and the mills were getting bigger and bigger and bigger start to go into a period of consolidation. Um, So no longer do you have kind of the freebooter lumber mill. They're getting bought by these big syndicates. Humbert of course was one of those that was purchased right around the time of the Great Depression, <laughs> which <laughs> clearly had a big impact on everything. And it's not that it closed down. It was, I mean, it was purchased by an outside company and it continued to operate and continued to be just as important to the town. But with the Depression, everything took a hit, including Humbird. Um, and then I believe a, por- a portion of the mill burned and it was really kind of the beginning of the end. The, uh, Humbird didn't really make it out of the Depression, which is yeah. why we don't have a big mill on you know the lake over here, we right? Have, we have seasons yeah. at Sandpoint instead. You know? uh, yeah. So that that period of, of the depression, I think, is really critical toward conservation as well. When lumbering as an economic activity isn't quite as profitable anymore, people are having to think about new ways to make a living, especially in these mm-hmm. rural communities. And one of the things that happens, kind of bizarrely, is during the depression, there's a new recreation ethos that starts mm-hmm. to develop. You know, in the twenties and into the early thirties, yeah, um, is that people started thinking about the forest as a place to recreate and as a place to you know enjoy natural beauty and, th- and you know the kinds of things that we go to the forest for today. That had become uh, a major source of the conservation thinking is that we you know, we need to save some of these beautiful places and we need to conserve them in a natural state as opposed to you know a stump field that's been regrown. Uh, and that's where in, during the Depression, you know, one of the things that uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, so we've got two Roosevelt presidencies here that have really critical roles to play in how we think about conservation and collaboration in the woods. Uh, during, during Roosevelt's uh, New Deal programs, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and I think that it's really important to realize why that happened when it happened. I mean, you think about all the different ways that the federal government could have gotten people back to work, and they picked. You know, among the options is conservation. I mean, it's right in the name, yeah. you know, Civilian Conservation yeah, yeah. Corps. And you never would have heard that 20, 30 years prior. I mean, even Teddy Roosevelt probably wouldn't have thought to create a Civilian Conservation Corps. And the CCC uh, just really had such a massive, profound impact on this area in particular. I think we, we sometimes forget just how big of a legacy the CCC had in North Idaho. So some of the numbers I found was there were 18,000 members of the CCC in Montana and Northern Idaho over one summer, approximately 16,000 coming from the east. So that's a, that's a large population of people coming in from elsewhere. And what they're doing is they're working on conservation things. You know, they're doing stream reclamation. They're trying to fix, you know, some of these erosive 
areas from previous generations of clear cutting and whatnot. Now they're building picnic tables. They're doing trail work. They're, you know, they're doing all these things. And people who live here and are from this community are like, wow, these, these people are from the East. Turns yeah. out they're not such big eggheads. Turns out they're spending money in our communities. And that was one of the best programs in the entire New Deal. Um, arguably the most successful of all of them. Right. Not necessarily for what it might have done for the economy, but for what it did kind of socially uh, in some of these communities. And so it it, it was a great uh, advertisement for the, the purpose of conservation and what it can do. And you get people who you know were so opposed to any kind of federal action on the land during the CCC period, starting to write these things in the newspaper about, you know, yeah, this is this is a great program, and mm-hmm. I wasn't too sure about these, you know, guys from back east coming in here and doing all this stuff, but you know, they're very nice young men and you know, stuff <laughs> like that. Um, and and what it does is it it kind of accomplishes some of those things that the Homestead Act was supposed to do, or like bringing the country together. Um, it, it did a lot to lessen kind of the sectional tensions between yeah. Western people and Eastern people when it came to the land. And it gave a sense of a national ownership yeah. of these lands as opposed to a onerous, you know, federal fiat. They're like, well, we, we do, we do all own this stuff together and we do all have to take care of it. And that's, that's a big turning point. That's not the way that people thought about these lands, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 15, 20, 30 years before. The CCC shuts down pretty uh, it, it, it was not a terribly long lasting program, right? No. Yeah. It was, it was one of the, yeah, it was kind of a flash in the pan, but yeah. while it was there, it did, you know, a lot of really important things in terms of changing people's perceptions of how to take care of their shared public lands. And that, that, that was really a high point for conservation thinking was during that very brief period when the CCC was in operation and by the turn of the of 1940, you know, by the beginning of the war, yeah. it was long gone. But the people who were part of it, it was like one of the most important things they ever did in their lives. Many times they would stay in the area that they worked because they loved it so much. For how brief it was, I think it played a very, very critical role in changing the notion of, of conservation in people's minds. And, you know, for what, what these lands could do in terms of multi-uses, because they, they fed into sort of that recreation idea that, you know, not only is this a shared national resource, but it's also a shared national playground. And it needs to be taken care of for the benefit of everybody. I mean, th- this was a very kind of socialist idea, which we didn't have prior to that and really didn't have later. It, I mean, this is a very unique time when people were willing to think about these resources and these landscapes in a communitarian way, uh, which would have been impossible, like I said earlier and later, as we know, right. uh, went away. <laughs> yeah, th- this seems to me like kind of – so d- those years just leading up to World War II does seem like when everybody finally – was getting along and kind of on the same page. Well, it like, starts it starts to click. Yeah. Right? Like why why we were talking about forest reserves, why we were talking about, you know, national forests, why we, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, why all this stuff is important. People are like, "Ah, now I see. Now I see." And what's interesting too is it goes even farther than that during this time period. Uh this is where we start getting sort of the wilderness movement where not only are people saying, you know, we need to protect these places, but we need to keep them as pristine and untouched by humanity as possible. And that was a revolutionary kind of idea, too, that, you know, people didn't really have during that mad dash, you know, to, to conquer the West. People didn't think about wilderness as a, as a quality in and of itself until around this time period. Or at least yeah. the, the, there wasn't like a, a large movement for it. I'm sure people thought that, you know, but there was no um, structure to support it and, yeah. make, and make it like a public conversation. And like Ehlers, uh, Ehlers Koch, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but... He writes in the Journal of Forestry uh, in 1935, uh, the passing of the Lolo Trail. And he's kind of a famous voice in this. And he he talks about these backcountry spaces throughout the West and in North Idaho in particular. And he is sneering at like the Forest Service. It's it's funny. I mean, and what he describes is would be considered today, you know, pretty uh pretty much still like the woods you know mm-hmm. the forest but he he sees it and sees how it has changed from when it was totally untouched yeah. and he doesn't like the way things are going so he's gone so far mm-hmm. uh you know in in the conservation mindset mm-hmm. 
that now he he hates the Forest Service, but he hates them from the other direction. Right. You know, it's like you got all the, it, these, these. Yeah, they're not doing enough. Yeah, these laissez-faire type people didn't like the Forest Service because it was like, well, the government's trying to tell them what to do. And Ellers is like, all right, Forest Service are not doing anything. Yeah. Like, and, and what they are doing, they're ruining these spaces. Like, yeah. You got, uh, you know, opened up the wilderness with roads and telephone lines and airplane landing fields. Mm-hmm. And the Forest Service capped the mountain peaks with white painted lookout houses, laced the ridges and streams with a network of trails and telephone lines, and poured in thousands of firefighters year after year in a vain attempt to confront forest fires. Um, so that's, I mean, that, that's a completely radical perspective from, it is, from yeah. what would have been, you know, in previous decades. This is a good, uh, good time to mention, I think, Bob Marshall, Robert Marshall. That's right. right? Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about him? Well, I think we talked about Bob Marshall a little bit in our last conversation, but yeah. he, uh, you know, he's the Bob in the Bob Marshall wilderness. Um, he was, you know, one of these sort of visionary conservationist guys. Um, I think he was, he was pretty young. He died of a heart attack. And I want to say he was only in his forties or early fifties, very short life. But during that mm. time, he was kind of revolutionary in changing the way that the government approached some of these conservation ideas. He was part of the Franklin Roosevelt administration. Right. He, was, yeah, what was his, how did he get in there? Or what was his role, I guess, in the... Well, he, he was a federal forester. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Ellers, he, in, in the passing of the Lolo Trail, he had a very similar kind of perspective on this. Um, and he had a job working for the Franklin Roosevelt administration in the 20s and, and the mid-30s. And he had become the head of the Forest Service Division of Recreation and Lands. So mm-hmm. his role in the Roosevelt administration was to specifically address recreation, which I think is interesting. Yeah. That it's right in the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he wrote a section on recreation in the 1933 National Plan for American Forestry. And this is where he gave kind of his own radical vision for protecting the forests going into the future. And this is referred to as the Copeland Report uh, because it was commissioned by a New York senator named Royal Copeland. And in that piece, uh, Marshall argued that uh, as much as 10% of all forest lands in the United States be designated as recreation areas. That's an enormous quantity of land uh, Uh being designated as recreation. And then he also goes further and advocates for establishing the Forest Service. uh, There are millions of acres of roadless holdings as wildernesses or primitive areas. So he's trying to lock up as much land as possible for recreation, for mm-hmm. wilderness. And then he wants the federal government, even more so, <laughs> to fully regulate timber harvests on all land, private yeah. and public. And this, Yeah, this I remember we talked about last time, but this was uh, very interesting to me. The idea that they would, yeah, you would no longer be able to, it would just be all, all under one entity. And this was proposed in 1933. Yeah, and this was, again, indicative of just the, the revolutionary way that people were thinking about conservation during this very mm-hmm. brief period. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think anyone ever gets this, like, radical, quote-unquote, or whatever, uh, ever again. No, no, nobody who's got a official seat yeah. in the administration. Anywhere, yeah, I mean, he, he's writing this, you know, as part of the president's, yeah. <laughs> like, cabinet, you know? Like, yeah, that, that was a—it didn't go anywhere, but— as an object lesson, I think it's interesting to consider that, you know, this this is sort of part of the spectrum of conversation that's happening um, during that particular time period. And, yeah, he dies in 1939. And, I mean, what he envisioned in that Copeland report obviously didn't – I mean, he would have been d- devastated to see what happened after, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially with World War II, which is what we talked about, you know, in our last conversation when, mm-hmm. when all that conservation thinking just gets blown out of the water – uh, with the massive boom um, in building that occurs and then sort of the reshuffling of the national population, uh, which is prob- more dramatic even than sort of the homestead period, which uh, is sort of like the bookend here of this first part of this history is, you know, the big boom to go, you know, go west, young man, mm-hmm. in the 1860s. And then all of a sudden you've got the boom in in the 40s and the 50s mm-hmm. that reshuffles that whole population matrix again. And both times conservation, there is no time for that. We got to go back to getting out the cut. Uh, that's right. Well, we're we're just about to the close of our time here together, Zach. Is there any um, any final final thoughts, final great wisdom you have to uh, to bring us about this first section? I just think it's fascinating to look at the ebb and flow of of how people think about conservation and yeah. and sort of the evolution of the way these things are talked about from say the eighteen nineties until the 1940s and 
just the idea that you go from a complete land grab, mm-hmm. laissez-faire, you know, skin the land, cut and run, whatever, whatever you want to call it, to these developing and very complex ideas about the way these landscapes function, how they should be managed, if they should be managed. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, we, we tend to forget that there was a conversation about do we even want to manage these lands? Um, and is that proper and appropriate? And that seems crazy, you know, today were, right. to, to think that that would even be an open question. Well, <laughs> just to some, it does anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, well, and that's the other thing too yeah. is that a lot of these arguments that you that you unearth in these in these old newspapers going back even more than a hundred years, you hear these same arguments today. Yeah, um, there, there were people in the nineteen tens that were saying, you know, the states should control all lands, the federal government shouldn't own any land, like give us back our lands. Right. Like we hear this argument today. Oh, yeah. And as Adam Sowers, you know, from U of I uh, pointed out, it's like that Congress owns the, that land. Like there, mm. the states never owned that land. So the, the idea that we're giving it back, is, it never belonged to the states. <laughs> but, and even during this time period in the, in the teens and the 20s, people don't want to confront that inconvenient truth. Um, and they're still making this argument. And then the stuff about the East Coast versus the West Coast, I mean, I think that's still around. So there, there's a lot of sort of changeless things that you find. When you when you approach conservation and collaboration, going through those first you know three four decades of the twentieth century, um, so there's a lot of change, but there's also a lot of stuff that stayed the same, uh, and especially in, regarding some of the rhetoric that we hear about how to manage land, whether to manage land, um, and the and the role of organizations like the Forest Service and the part that they play. Um, so yeah, I mean, as his, historians are always looking for change over time, like that's our whole thing. And I, I, I find a lot of evidence for change over time, but I also find a lot of uh, continuity in the conversation, which, which means that it's an important conversation to have, and we need to keep having it. Zach Hagedon is the editor-in-chief of The Sandpoint Reader. You can read all the articles of his Timber Wars series online at sandpointreader.com. Watch for the conclusion to his series in this month's Reader, and stay tuned to this podcast for one more conversation with Zach that brings us out of the past and right up to the present day. This has been Your Wild Place, a podcast from the Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit our website, scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode featured Zach Hagedon and was edited by me, Jack Peterson. Theme music by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. Subscribe to Your Wild Place wherever you listen to podcasts. And better yet, give Your Wild Place a like and review.